So I'd like to ask you a question as we begin this morning. When was it that you discovered that life was not fair? Maybe it was when you were a kid. Maybe it was when you were with someone else in that classroom and that someone else got the gift that you wanted in the Christmas exchange. He wanted the, the toy that you desperately wanted. He's the one who got it. Or maybe it was when you were in middle school and all of the other students around you were cheating on a test and you decided that you weren't going to cheat on the test, but they all got the good grade and you got the worst grade in the class. What? How does this happen? How is it that cheaters win? How is it that some of this goes on and they seem to get away with it? I don't understand. Maybe it's later. Maybe it was when you were in college and one of your professors seemed like they zeroed in on you because they found out or figured out that you were a follower of Christ. And so they were going to make your life miserable for one reason or another. They felt like it was their job to make life difficult. And if you're a parent, most of us are parents in the room. If you're a parent, you've begun to teach your children. One of the most important things you need to learn, kids, life is not fair. We feel like it's our responsibility to tell them that. If you haven't figured that out yet, if that's the only lesson you hear from me today, then today is the day. Life is not fair. We go through suffering. We experience injustice. It's part of the human experience here on this earth. Life is not fair. And this is because we live in a broken world. We talked about this last week. For those of you who are here, we discovered that our world is broken by sin. And because our world is broken by sin, life isn't fair. Now, of course, these issues that I'm bringing up this morning, they are all minor issues that don't have a whole lot to do with the long-range plans for most of us. But it doesn't take long for us to realize that suffering hurts. Pain is pain, sorrow is sorrow, and it is all the more that we go to God and we cry out and we say, Why, God? Why is this happening to me? Where are you in my pain? Where are you in the midst of my suffering? And you've cried that out. And if you're here this morning and you have cried that out or you've been in that moment, I want you to know that you are not alone. There's a lot of people in the Bible who have cried out for the injustice that they are experiencing, for the sorrow, for the pain that they are seeing. There's a lot of people in this room who have cried out and said, this is wrong. God, where are you? What are you doing? The psalmist cries out many times throughout the Psalms. God, are you even listening? Are you even here? We spent this summer in a sermon series in the book of Lamentations that's built around that in a poetic form. God, where are you? Why are you allowing these things to happen? And then there's Job. Job chapter 3 verse 11 says, God, why did I not die at birth? Why did I come forth from the womb to experience this? Let me expire there. I've been in some difficult situations at different times, but I don't know that I've ever been at that point where I'm asking God, why didn't you just kill me and not let me be born at all? That was the suffering that Job had endured. Even relating to where we went last week with the message, the Lord Jesus himself on the cross, Matthew 27, verse 46, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe you've never experienced that level of despair, that level of pain, and that level of suffering, and maybe you have, and maybe you will this week. 
Maybe you're going through something right now. Something right now that is so incredibly painful that night after night, morning after morning, day after day, you find yourself crying out to God and saying, God, are you okay with this? Are you allowing this to happen? You need to hear this morning that God is big enough to handle you asking those types of questions. And God's okay with you asking those types of questions. So we have many of the Psalms. We have lamentations. We have all of these stories here for us to know and understand when we look into God's Word that we are not alone. There are those who have gone before us, those who have gone ahead of us, and they found themselves crying out in despair, Lord, where are you? Do you know what they found? They also found that God is big enough to handle those questions and that we are not alone. God is big enough and we are not alone. God is always there. My name is Pastor Milo, and if we haven't met yet, I'd love the opportunity to do that after the service. If you're watching online, welcome. We're glad you're here. We are spending the next several weeks, several months even, uh, the sermons that are here at Randall Church are going to be focused on this book of Esther. We're working our way through. One of the unique factors, we talked about this last week, of this book of Esther is that the Word of God, the Word God, excuse me, is never spoken in this book at all. That only happens in one other book of the Bible, Song of Solomon. We see again and again and again that while God is not spoken by name, He is still in the middle of this mess that we see in Esther. When things look the bleakest, when God seems the most distant, He's actually right there the whole time. When the music fades and all is stripped away. Pastor Brian talked about this first week, that there's this supporting musical lyrical line that just happens to be this background playing that God is always playing for us. He is, he is providentially ordering things for the good of His people, working behind the scenes in subtle ways to show us that He is there. He is Emmanuel, as we talk about at Christmas, God with us. God is big enough, and we are not alone. God is always there. If you're not familiar with this book, Esther, it is jam-packed with all kinds of drama and all types of seeming coincidence. It simply doesn't make sense outside of the God hand of God. And as we read through this particular story, as we continue to unpack all the different chapters of what happens here in the book of Esther, you might, you might get the idea as we kind of go through it that this is one of the strangest books I've ever read. This is one of the strangest stories I've ever heard. Or this is one of the most well-written stories that I've ever heard. And I want to push us to get beyond that and say this is uh, one of the most interesting things I've ever read to understand. No, this is one of the most applicable, applicable things that we could read today. The story is incredibly relevant for us and how we live today. As a church, we group the where, where people live, oftentimes in our church in different school districts that people come from. So whether you live here in the Williamsville school districts, if you live in the Lancaster school districts, if you live in the Clarence school district, that's how we kind of talk to you as a congregation. So we know where you live, we know uh, what you do on a daily basis. You're in our care corridors, we call it. Well, whether you're in one of those care corridors or whether you're listening online and you're somewhere entirely different or whether you are in the city of Susa under the rule of a dictator named King Xerxes, you may feel like this. Have you ever felt like no matter what you did, it just didn't matter? 
Have you ever felt like no matter what you did, it just didn't matter? Whether you choose to do good or choose to do evil, whether you choose the right thing or you choose to do the wrong thing, it seems like there are times where it just doesn't matter. Whatever you change, whatever you adjust, whatever you shift, doesn't seem to change or shift or adjust anything. What do you do when what matters doesn't matter? What do you do in these circumstances? This, as we explore the book of Esther, is what Queen Esther herself is facing. As we explore and look at the people in the, life, the lives around her, uh, we see Mordecai, her uncle. We were introduced to him last week. As we discuss, there's this incredible power imbalance that is going on there in Susa. Many scholars believe that in order for Mordecai to be in service to the king, that he was forcibly made into being a eunuch so that he could serve there in the office of the king. And for Esther as well, she has risen in power to the position of queen. And we celebrate that, but as we see and will see here today, the power imbalance still remains. The manipulative powers that control King Xerxes, or King Headache, as the, as the Hebrews wanted to call him, King Double-Minded, as the Jews were calling him, control her as well. So what do you do? What do you do when what matters doesn't seem to matter? Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he had been bringing her up. What do you do when being faithful doesn't get you very far? What do you do when being faithful doesn't get you very far. Remember, there's a reason why it seems like this passage goes on and on. We're not really getting deep into the story yet. Why is that? Well, because the narrator, the writer of the story, is giving us some clues that we need to pay attention to. He's going into great detail into some of these circumstances that really he could push right through and get on with it, but he is giving us these details for a reason. We need to understand how God is at work in this great mess. And so we have to stop. We have to pause for a minute and realize what is being said here about all that is taking place. The first thing that was said is when the virgins were assembled a second time. Let's not forget what happened the first time. The first time these men would go throughout the city, throughout the land, throughout the kingdom, treating young girls like they were commodities of the king. They were going out and they would do whatever they wanted, whatever they needed to, pick these gals, 15, 16, 17 years old, pull them out, rip them away from their family, and tell us, you're coming with us. And this happened to hundreds, maybe even thousands of young girls. So it would, it would please the sick desires of this Persian king and the puppet masters that controlled him. As we talked about this last week, it begins to turn your stomach when you realize the real story of what's going on. It should be a wake-up call to us. The tendency we have when we read a book like this, read passages like this, and give ourselves the Sunday school sanitized version of what is happening. We are adults here. Don't gloss over what is going on here. This is a horrible event. This is a story 
of trafficking, a story of victimization. This an entire population of people. And now here in chapter 2, Esther has won the trophy, so it would seem, of this sick and twisted beauty pageant. The trophy is the crown. She has won the crown. She has become the queen. But don't be gullible enough to think. Don't be Uh, Don't assume or presume that once Esther is queen, that King Xerxes changes. That he turns into the father that Esther always wanted and we as the reader always wanted him to be. That he is somehow now coaching the Little League team there in the kingdom. That he is involved in the PTA and the elementary school. That he is engaged and involved and is the dad we always wanted him to be. That is not what is going on here. This is not a fairy tale ending, friend. No, this is the reality of a cruel and broken world. This is what sin does. Because even though Esther is queen, there is a second beauty pageant assembling in the background. Another lineup being put together. Another lineup of virgins for the king and his power-hungry councilmen to manipulate and control. This is what's going on. What do you do when being faithful doesn't get you very far? Esther here has kept all of her background, her nationality, a secret, as Mordecai had told her to do. She continues to follow Mordecai's instructions. She has done everything that he has taught her when he was bringing her up. She followed the instructions. She was a good soldier. She had done exactly what she was told. She was faithful. She was good at caring for the people who cared for her. We read about how her staff was was respected and they they had earned her her respect and it was mutual back and forth that she was doing good and she was doing the things that matter and yet it doesn't seem to matter at all. Maybe some of you have experienced this. In your workplace, doing the things that you know you should be doing when nobody is watching and yet it doesn't seem to matter. To matter. This is not an isolated event. This is what happens when we live in a world that is broken and damaged and corrupted and polluted by sin. Mordecai, meanwhile, is experiencing a very similar thing. Verse 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and they conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Are you reading this? There's a reason why we get the details here. Don't miss the little details. The author is putting them there for a reason. What is it that we do? What do you do when what matters doesn't seem to matter to anyone? What do you do when being honest doesn't gain you access? What do you do when being honest doesn't gain you any access? Mordecai, we are told here, is sitting at the king's gate. He's been given this position at the king's gate. And and in this eastern culture, this gate is what we would call maybe the courthouse. It's a chair that he's seated in, and he is not just in any courthouse in the land. He is in the king's gate. He's at the king's courthouse. And we see this all through the Old Testament. There are many examples of influential men who are carrying out legal transactions. If you look back into the book of Genesis, you think about uh, two characters we know pretty well, Abraham and Lot. 
And they are standing there with their herds, and their herdsmen are fighting with each other because the land is getting crowded. And they're standing on the mountain looking over the mountainside. Abraham tells Lot, he says, why don't you decide, young man? I'll give you the first choice, first access as to where you want to go with your herds, and I will go in the other direction. You can either go to the mountains where it's rough terrain and it's hard to do the work, or you can go down into the valley where the land is lush and your animals are going to love it. And so Lot looks over the land. He looks down into the train. He says, wow, look, that's a beautiful place to be. That's a beautiful place to do work. And my wife is going to love shopping there. And so they move. He moves into the city. And it isn't long before we find him, what? Sitting at the gate. He is in the courthouse. He is in the intermingling of the land. Another very different man from Lot is Boaz. Ruth comes from Naomi, who's this far country. Boaz is is watching, and and he realizes that she is in need, and so he gives her extra grain, he gives her extra help, he gives her extra food, and he finds out that she is interested in him, and she presents herself to him. He says, of course I will marry you. He says, I'm an older man, but sure, I'd love to marry you. But hang on, there's this one little detail I forgot to say is that I need a kingsman redeemer who's going to wipe away all of my debt and all of my family debt and all of what needs to happen there. And he says there's someone who stands between you and I. He's a closer relative. And you remember where they go? They go to the city gate. And there at the city gate, Boaz and this other kinsman redeemer, they gather the leadership there at the gate in the courthouse. He brings that near kinsman redeemer and he says, hey, do you want to buy Ruth back and Naomi back and all of their property and all of their land? This kinsman redeemer, he looks and he says, oh, you know what? He says, I don't want to lose my good name in this transaction. And there's some detail work that's being done there because the narrator for for the book of Ruth doesn't name him. John Doe, it would seem, who wanted to keep his good name is never named going forward. He says, never mind, you can have her. And Boaz marries Ruth. They get married. This transaction happens there at the gate. Boaz redeems Ruth and Naomi and the household. And the lineage becomes who? King David. And David serves as king. And then something happens that splits the kingdom in two. Do you remember what it was? It's Absalom. His beautiful, handsome, good-looking son, Absalom. Do you remember what he did? He put himself where? At the king's gate in Jerusalem. And he interposed himself. Whenever there was a rift, whenever there was something between he and his father, David, then he would be at the gate. David wouldn't fully forgive him and invite him back into the royal chambers. And so he started doing his work out there. He would say to people as they would come in to do business, he said, hey, what's going on? How can I help you? How can I deal with your problem out here? And politically, he stole the kingdom away from his father. Where did he do it? At the king's gate. At the courthouse. And that is where we find Mordecai. Mordecai is sitting there, serving there, working there at the king's gate. The author is trying to help us understand that he is not just some nobody. He's not a wallflower. He is actually there serving and working. He's, he's very integral to what happens within this kingdom. Just like in the days of Daniel, they, they came in and they pulled away the best and the brightest, and Mordecai is one of them, and he is there working and serving. He's a strategist for the king 
in the king's court. And so however he ended up in this appointed position to the king, doing whatever the job was, he is still on the outside. What do you do when being honest doesn't gain you access? Look who's closer to the king. The two that guard the door. These are the secret service agents close to the king, protecting the king on a very personal basis. These guys may have been eating some of the king's food in order to make sure that he wasn't being poisoned. Those types of things. That that these guys are there as his right-hand men. And somehow they get disgruntled. What do you do when being honest doesn't gain you access? The great King Xerxes has made these guys his bodyguard, but he should never have trusted them. Because he has built a culture, because of his sin, and because of his dark ways, and because anything goes in this kingdom, and so whatever is good for anyone, they're always working for their own gain. They're always working for their selfish ambitions. And he is demonstrating this by his own selfish pursuits. And that's why people around him are doing the very same thing. He has created a dog-eat-dog culture. And that's exactly what they are trying to do as it pervades throughout his kingdom. And what's ironic is although it doesn't happen here, this is what actually happens to King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes as we also call him. His royal bodyguards knock him off later in 465 B.C. That's actually how this king dies. Some of these bodyguards and some of these guys who are supposed to be his inner circle protecting him are the ones who end up killing him. They should never have been trusted. But that's who he has in his inner circle guarding supposedly his door. Where's Mordecai? He's on the outside looking in. What do you do when being honest doesn't gain you any closer access? Regardless, look to verse 22. This is the assassination plan as it comes together. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, and she gave credit to Mordecai. When the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles, put out there for all to see, that these were the traitors, these were the ones committing treason. This was all recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. This was all made public to everyone. Even that Mordecai was the one who foiled this plan. This is all made public. It's all part of the public record. But look at verse 1 of chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agatite, elevating and giving him the seat of honor, higher than all of the other nobles. What do you do? What do you do when what matters doesn't seem to matter? What do you do when being truthful doesn't win you any trophies? What do you do when being truthful doesn't win you any trophies? Mordecai has every reason to allow this assassination plot to go through. Look what has been done to his his niece. Look what has been done to the queen, Esther, and how she has been treated. Look what has been done to himself. He has every reason to go after the king. Every reason to ruin his life and allow this to happen. But he is honest. He is truthful. And he is in some ways even loyal to someone he should never be loyal to. But he does it anyway because it is the rightful thing to do. 
What do you do when being truthful doesn't win you any trophies? We're going to get into Haman next week and beyond. But Haman here is, is an Agagite. So he is, we'll get into this next week to be able to talk through the details of it. But this is a group of people who have always been in opposition to the Israelites. And he's the one given a seat of honor. So there's no longer one, two, three bodyguards. The circle's getting tighter and tighter, closer and closer. And whatever Haman had to do or say to make the king believe that he was the only one who could be trusted, that's what's happened here. Whatever lies he had to tell him, whatever bribes he had to pay him, because we see him doing that later on in the book, whatever he had to do, he was going to get right next to the king because that's what was going to suit him best. Meanwhile, Mordecai was being truthful. Mordecai was being honest. It didn't win him any trophies. It didn't get him any closer. Queen Esther, in being faithful, hasn't gotten any farther than she would have if she had been just like everyone else. What do you do when it doesn't seem that life is fair? What do you do when life isn't fair? How do you respond to the injustice that's happening? Do you just fall into line with everyone else? Because when life doesn't seem fair, then obedience doesn't seem necessary. When life doesn't seem fair, then obedience doesn't seem necessary. Because you look around, you look at all the things that are around you, say, it isn't working for me here, and it's working for everyone else. That's what we read in the book of Lamentations. As we talked about this summer, as everyone else seems to succeed. Mordecai's on the outside looking in. He could make the same decision that you and I often make, that our sin nature tells us to make, that when life doesn't seem fair, obedience is not necessary. Doing the right thing, being honest, being trustworthy, being pure, being just, being holy, all of those things are a waste of time because it doesn't seem necessary to be obedient because it's not going to get me very far. What do you do? When life doesn't seem fair. Well, guess what? God isn't fair. And it's a good thing He isn't. God is not fair. And it is a good thing that He isn't. Let me explain. You're going to need to turn your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And he describes the world that we live in with this parable that helps us to see, helps us to understand what an unfair world really looks like. Let me read it to you. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them for a denarius for a day and sent them into his vineyard. They were going to work for a whole day for a denarius, a day's wages. About nine in the morning, he went out and he saw others that were still standing there in the marketplace doing nothing. So he told them, you also go. You work in my vineyard. I will pay you whatever is right. He went out again at noon. And again at three in the afternoon, he did the same thing. At five in the afternoon, he went out and he still found others that were standing around. And he said, why have you been standing here all day and doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and you work in my vineyard. Verse 8, when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers, pay them for their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, and go on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came, and they each received a denarius, a full day's 
wage. So when those who came were hired first, they expected, because they saw this, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last only worked one hour, they said, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of this work and the heat of the day. But he answered them. He said, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work today for Daenerys? Take your pay and go. If I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. You see, God isn't fair, and it's a good thing that He isn't. God isn't fair, and it's a good thing that He isn't because Andy Stanley says this, fairness would demand that we would die for our own sins. God isn't fair, and it's a good thing that it isn't because fairness would demand that you and I die for our own sins. This world is broken. This world is corrupt. This world is polluted, and there's no one to blame but you. There's no one to blame but me. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, when what matters does matter, His grace is sufficient for you. His grace is sufficient for you. His grace is sufficient for Mordecai. His grace is sufficient for Esther. And all of the injustice that we see in this passage today, for all that is wrong in what is going on there in the land under King Xerxes, for all that is going on in our land, in our country, in countries around the world that is unjust and it is wrong, His grace is sufficient for you. Romans chapter 6 verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? When asked the question, what are we supposed to do when everyone else, when it's unfair and it seems like everybody else is succeeding, this passage tells us, well, you can't jump in with them. You can't behave like the rest of the world because we are dead to sin. How could we possibly live in it any longer? Jumping forward in that same passage, Romans chapter 6, verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that you used to be slaves to sin, but now you have come to obey. From your heart, the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. As the band makes their way forward this morning, we need to be reminded, verse 18, you have been set free from sin, and now you are slaves to righteousness, right living, a right standing before the Lord. What do you do when what matters doesn't matter? Be obedient. Be obedient. Obedience doesn't come with a reward. Knowing Christ has its own reward. Obedience doesn't come with a reward. We don't see this this huge change happen in Esther's life or Mordecai's life because they were obedient. We will see that God is going to work things according to His will and according to His plan. 
but it doesn't mean that they got any further necessarily. Because obedience doesn't come with a reward. It's, it's Christ that is our reward. Our standing before a holy God because what He did on our cross, because we could never pay the debt that we owe. When we stand before a holy God, the cross is our only access to Him. He is the mediator. He is, he is what's created a way for us to even come into the throne room. That's all that we've got. That's the only options that we got. And thanks be to God that now we are slaves to righteousness. So we will be obedient. Because knowing Christ is its own reward. This same verse written in the message translation, I think, is the, the way that we're going to finish our morning here this morning. It says this, Off yourselves to sin, and it's your last free act. Off yourselves instead to the ways of God, and freedom never quits. We see this being played out, and you'll see it being played out in the rest of the book of Esther. Those who have offered themselves to sin, who've pursued after things of this world, Xerxes himself is going to die because of what he does and because of the way he lives his life. He has offered himself 100% over to sin. And it's his last free act. But you and I, we can offer ourselves to the way of God. We can be obedient to Him and be obedient to His Word. And it will be free freedom that never, ever quits. So this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, let me ask you again. What do you do when what matters doesn't seem to matter? Lord, it's easy for us to point fingers in every other direction. To look around and find out that, that those around us seem to be getting forward and getting what they want with their selfish desires and their selfish ways. And there seems like no real reason, no advantage to follow after you. Lord, teach us that obedience, particularly obedience in Christ, is the reward in and of itself. If there's someone here this morning, and as I talk about the free gift that is offered to us, the way of salvation that is offered to us because of what you have done on the cross, Lord, I pray that there would be someone this morning, someone this morning who looks around and realizes that they've been chasing everything and everyone to fill that hole and found themselves empty. If that's you this morning, would you pray this prayer? Lord, the Bible says I am a sinner. I believe it. The Bible says I cannot save myself no matter what I do, and I believe that. The Bible also says if I confess my sins, you are faithful and just to forgive me for my sins. Lord, I confess my sins to you this morning. I accept your free gift. I want to spend the rest of my life in freedom, free obedience to a heavenly calling. In Jesus' name, if you're here this morning and you're committing the sin of looking around, looking at the world and wishing and wondering what it would look like if you could be more like them rather than looking more like Christ. Would you pray this morning that God does something in your heart as well? That you would stop putting and placing your hope in your own strength, in your own power, in your own thoughts your own ingenuity, but you'd return to what is supposed to be your first love, 
Jesus Christ. As we will sing in just a moment, in Christ alone my hope is found. May we find hope here in this place this morning. May the story of Esther, the darkness of her situation, and yet the way that you move in her life, in the life of Mordecai, in the life of Israel, Lord, we remind us that you are at work here, in this place, in our time, and in our culture, no matter how dark it may be. Lord, teach us to follow after you, be obedient to you, no matter what. We love you, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.